content warning. This episode contains brief descriptions of sexual assault and mutilation. I do my best not to linger on these topics. It also contains numerous references to racial slurs. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Class A Felons. I'm your hostess, Paris Brown, and this episode is titled The Sherman Courthouse Riot, The Lynching of George Hughes, a Precursor to George Floyd. Welcome back to the show. As many of you know, I've been on hiatus for quite a while. Between working two full-time jobs and trying to finish writing my PhD dissertation, oh, and on top of that, buying and starting the restoration process on an historical home, I haven't been able to devote time to the podcast for a long time. But every single day I've longed to return and have thought of you, the listeners. And so, at long last, I'm back, and I couldn't be more grateful to return to what I'd love to do. Thank you all for your patience and your loyalty. The true crime I'm sharing today occurred over 90 years ago, but it still resonates. It's a crime so incredible and tragic that it can be difficult to believe it really happened, but it did. I know because my great-grandmother first shared the story with me when I was a young girl, and the horror of it had stayed with me my entire life. It's the story of George Hughes, an African-American man who, in 1930, was accused of sexually assaulting a white woman in northeastern Texas. Vigilantes and KKK sympathizers disrupted his trial, tried to fight the Texas Rangers and the state militia, and eventually set the courthouse and the entire African-American district of town on fire, all in an attempt to murder a man who they assumed was guilty and was not given the chance to be proven innocent. What happened next is ghastly beyond belief. To this day, city leaders are reluctant to acknowledge that the events of 1930 ever took place. I only know of one other true crime podcast that has ever covered this, and that's Outlaws and Scorned Women. I like to give other podcasts credit for researching obscure crime stories, because after I covered the story of the murder of Barbara Finch by her husband, Dr. Bernard Finch, which was the third episode of this podcast, another podcast did an episode on it. It's a rather popular podcast, and all they said was that only one other podcast had ever featured it, and I wished, I thought it would be nice if they had mentioned my podcast by name, so I always try to give credit where it's due. Speaking of credit, I'll be listing my sources at the end of the podcast, and they'll be available on my website, classafelons.wordpress.com, as well as on my YouTube channel, Class A Felons, B Films, C Cups. Anyway, on to the show. time ago when I was a teenager, I got on a plane for the first time in my life. My destination? Grayson County in Northeast Texas, USA. I was traveling with my great-grandparents and my aunt to see the place where my great-grandmother Frances had grown up. I was very close to Frances and simply called her my grandmother, since I didn't know her daughter, who was my actual grandma. Frances had spent the early years of her life in Sherman, Texas, a small, 
once thriving city, only about 10 miles south of the Oklahoma border and 70 miles, or 110 kilometers north of Dallas. Frances' sister, Billy, my great-great-aunt, lived in Sherman at the time of our visit, having returned to her hometown after spending some of her middle years in California, where I've lived my entire life. Frances's niece, Ima, my first cousin, twice removed, lived in the tiny nearby town of Tom Bean. She too had spent part of her life in California, and she was a wonderful aunt, as I called her, even though we were actually cousins. Her mother, my great-grandmother's elder sister, had been one of the millions of casualties of the Spanish influenza pandemic in 1918, dying when Ima was only three years old. I was excited about the trip, to be finally flying in a plane and to visit the place where Frances had grown up. She had never spoken much about her years there, but she had once told me a story at the kitchen table that I found both frightful and intriguing. She had mentioned that her birth certificate no longer existed. There is no record of her birth. The courthouse in her town, which had kept all of the county records, including those of local births, had burned to the ground one night. As incredible as this was to contemplate, here's what really astounded me. Frances added that the reason the courthouse went down in fire was because the townspeople had set it ablaze to punish a black man who had been locked in a vault inside for assaulting a white woman. The man had died in the inferno. I remember feeling stunned and horrified at hearing this, but I was a pretty passive child and never asked a lot of questions. Whenever I did ask about the past, it was usually about her history post-1936, which is when she moved to Los Angeles and married my great-grandfather, probably because she rarely mentioned what her life was like before that time. We never revisited the topic, but I never forgot it either. After Frances passed away and the internet came into being, her story about the tragic man continued to haunt me. Could it really have happened? My great-grandmother was famously reticent about people knowing her true age. I had never known how old she actually was until after her death, when I accompanied my great-grandfather to the mortuary to have her death certificate filled out. How strange to have documentation of your life only after your death. To have a piece of paper declaring that you were dead, but not one to say that you had ever been born. I wondered if the story was a way to keep nosy descendants from ever looking into her birth certificate and determining her true age. After all, she had gone so far as to request that her date of birth not be engraved on her headstone, and she had a fake birth date printed on her driver's license, which she had first obtained back in the days when you didn't need to prove who you were in order to drive. So I ventured online and looked for information about a man who died nightmarishly while trapped in a courthouse turned fiery inferno, and to my surprise, I found that his death happened essentially as Francis had described. His name was George Hughes. He existed. And what happened to him is much worse and more terrifying than I could have imagined. I have been personally researching this case on and off now for nearly 25 years. Although other lynchings and racial atrocities, such as the Tulsa Massacre of 1921, have recently resurfaced and gained public attention, this particular case has largely been ignored. This is a story of the North Texas lynching that has seemingly been lost to time. The city of Sherman, Texas, founded in 1846, is located in Grayson County, which is directly north of Dallas and shares its northern border with Oklahoma. 
Although Texas attempted to secede from the U.S. along with other southern states during the Civil War, Grayson County was not an area known for slavery, and in fact, the county openly opposed the state in its attempted secession. There had, however, been a previous lynching in Grayson County in 1901 of an African-American man accused of murder. Even so, the city of Sherman, unlike many other southern towns after the Civil War, began a period of cultural and economic success and became known as the Athens of Texas. It boasted four colleges, a Union Railroad station, and, as the county seat, built a magnificent new county courthouse in 1876. It was designed by master architects Martin and Moody, who designed many Texas courthouses of the period. Primarily made of brick and stone, with interior wood flooring and walls, it was built in an Italianate style inspired by 16th century Italian Renaissance architecture and the picturesque movement. It was a two-story building but looked much taller with the help of a majestic white tower capped by a cupola with a bell and clock that sat atop the courthouse. However, these triumphs didn't mean that racism had been successfully defeated. It sometimes dipped below the surface, but it persevered and percolated. This was evident in the fact that Sherman was mostly white, and the African Americans who did live there were segregated to a separate part of town. In 1930, nearly 16,000 people lived in Sherman, 2,000 of those residents African Americans. In 1922, the Ku Klux Klan had arrived in Sherman, spewing hateful rhetoric to an audience of 8,000 interested onlookers. The financial ramifications of the Great Depression were beginning to creep into Grayson County in 1930 and all of the American South. While many white farmers in 1930 found they were beginning to struggle to make a living from their cotton crops, black residents had trouble obtaining even the lowest paying jobs. The African American district of Sherman was one exception. Businesses there managed to do relatively well even in those early months of the Great Depression. In 1930, Sherman's relatively thriving African-American business district occupied three blocks of Mulberry Avenue, located three blocks northeast of the county courthouse. This district included at least two African-American doctors and two black dentists. In addition, Mulberry Avenue boasted a hotel, two mortuaries, a pharmacy, a salon, at least two restaurants, a grocery store, a movie theater called The Capitol, a pool hall, at least one fraternal lodge, a law office, a life insurance office, two barber shops, and the large Andrews Auditorium where big band dances were held. One of the barber shops included three bathtubs where people without indoor plumbing could visit to bathe using these modern conveniences. In addition, a number of African Americans in Sherman owned their own homes and a large school was built for their children, although all of the desks, equipment, and school supplies were not new, but used. Francis and Billy's parents, my great-great-grandparents, lived one and a half miles from the Sherman Courthouse and about two and a half miles from the African-American Business District. However, they are not really part of this story. As lifelong Southerners whose fathers both fought in the Civil War, on the Confederate side, we can be certain that they were not especially sympathetic toward African-American issues. On the other hand, I've never found any evidence that they were secret members of the Ku Klux Klan either. 
They were farmers for many years, not wealthy, but not particularly poor either. My grandmother's maternal grandfather had defected from the Confederacy, going AWOL. Whether that was out of dwindling loyalty or, as with many Confederates, due to starvation or other desperate circumstances, can only be surmised. However, with additional research, I discovered that Frances and her first husband, my biological great-grandfather, who was an auto mechanic, lived only about a mile or a mile and a half from the courthouse in 1930. This means that my five-and-a-half-year-old grandmother was also in Sherman when this tragedy occurred. How would the horror of that day have been explained to a young child, if at all? Let's get into the story. George Hughes was born in 1889. The exact day is unknown. Not much is known about his life, so I'm qualifying the following information. He was probably raised in the small, unincorporated town of Petty, Texas, about 48 miles east of Sherman. His parents were native Texans and likely former slaves. They may have passed away before George reached adulthood. George does not appear to have served in the military. In about 1926, he may have begun living with a woman named Molly, who was 52 at the time, and 13 years his elder. George may have been able to read and write, although Molly did not. She and her parents were likely also Texas natives. Molly did not have a formal occupation. Apparently, either prior to his 1930 arrest or during his post-arrest interview, George relayed that he had, quote-unquote, bound Molly, living with, quote, an old man in Plano, Texas, 30 miles south of Sherman. He, quote, stole her, these are reportedly his own words, from the older gentleman and lived with her for two years, calling her his common-law wife. This was his only known marriage, while Molly had been married before. After this union with Molly, he is believed to have fathered two children with her, but he claimed to have, quote, quit her just weeks before his death. However, Molly was interviewed after George's arrest and claimed to have knowledge of his whereabouts and intentions on that fateful day. George was a newly itinerant laborer who had only been in the Sherman area for a few months and had possibly lived in Honeygrove, near his hometown, just prior to his arrival. Honeygrove's local newspaper, The Signal Citizen, reported shortly after George's death that he had changed his last name just after leaving the area and that his real name was George Jackson. He had reportedly worked for a number of years on a farm south of Honeygrove. His former employer described him as hardworking and, quote, the best help about the farm he had ever had. He was a trusted employee, although he did not appear to be quote-unquote, bright at all times. After moving to Grayson County, George rented a dwelling on a local farm. Although he had not been in the area for long, he was locally known as, quote, crazy, a half-wit, and prone to spells. Whether that last term meant seizures, bits of temper, mental instability, or something else is for the listener's conjecture. Rumor had it in Sherman's African-American community that George and Molly were, quote, denizens of the underworld, yet there is no criminal record for either George or Molly. The rumor was likely started due to their status as itinerant outsiders. In truth, Sherman residents knew nothing about the Hughes couple. One college-aged resident described them as just drifting through, and George specifically as, quote, a kind of loafing man coming through town. 
This is virtually all that is known or rumored to be known about the couple's lives prior to May 3, 1930. At that time, George had been employed for two weeks by a tenant farmer by the last name of Farlow in the unincorporated town of Luella. George's employment here coincides with the date that he supposedly left his wife Molly. Luella is a farming community on State Highway 11, four miles southeast of Sherman in East Central Grayson County. It was settled in 1888 when the tracks of the St. Louis Southwestern Railway reached the area and Luella was established as a post office branch for the railroad's Lynn Station. In 1914, it had 50 people and seven businesses. The community remained small and it lost its post office in 1924. For the next few decades, it served as a community center for area farmers. Sometime in the 1970s, the town apparently voted to disincorporate. Starting in the early 1980s, however, the town began to grow and it became a bedroom community for nearby Sherman. In 1989, it had an estimated 441 residents, and in 1990, 559. In 2000, the population was 639. In 1930, a white tenant farmer named Wiley Drew Farlow, known as Drew, was renting a farm in Luella. Drew had a seventh grade education. He was 30 years old and his wife, Pearl, was 28. Drew and Pearl had been married for eight years and had two children, Billie Jean and Robert, who were seven and five years old. Now, Pearl Inez Atnett Farlow was born in 1901 in the small town of Bells, Grayson County, Texas, to Luther Atnip and Maddie Kinsmore. Like George Hughes, Pearl's parents were also both born in Texas. She was the eldest of five children. Pearl had completed her junior year of high school, but never graduated, although she did not marry or have children, as far as is known, until her 20s. Her paternal uncle, Bevy Atnip, known as Benno, was a longtime, popular, and seemingly powerful Sherman police officer, which likely factored into the amount of attention this case received and the non-action of local police toward the mob who would later burn down the courthouse and lynch George Hughes. Drew owed George his first wage, totaling $6, which would be $92.87 in 2021 dollars. At about 10 a.m. on Saturday, May 3, 1930, George arrived at the Farlow residence to ask for the money. According to Pearl, she advised him that her husband Drew was not at home and could be located in Sherman at a hitching post on Walnut Street, or George could come back later. He left, but returned 45 minutes later at her kitchen door with a double-barrel shotgun, demanding the money and making threats of an unspecified nature against Pearl and her son Robert the only other person inside the house with her at the time. This part of the alleged incident aligns with the initial report given to the public. However, the next part of Pearl's account did not emerge until two days later, on May 5th, while George was sitting in jail. Only then was George openly accused of raping Pearl Farlow. This time lapse would later lead to suspicion about the validity of her story. Pearl claimed that George forced his way inside the farmhouse dragged her into her bedroom in front of her five-year-old son and sexually assaulted her as the boy ran crying from the home. Pearl asserted that George spoke to her during the attack, telling her that he knew what he was doing and that he would be killed for it. 
He allegedly told her the reason for the assault was because, quote, white folks hated him and his race, that he was, quote, not through with her, but would be back in a little while and meant to kill her and her baby. He then bound her to her bedpost with electrical cord and left. Pearl believed that he was in pursuit of her son. According to the rest of the account, Pearl was almost immediately able to free herself. She ran barefoot to the farm of a neighbor, George Taylor, who telephoned the sheriff. Taylor then quickly rounded up other nearby neighbors to look for Pearl's young son and for George. They supposedly found the boy crying on the nearest road and George inside the Farlow's barn, apparently searching for the boy, although a different account states that the boy was hiding in loose hay inside the barn as well. When George spotted the neighbors, he began to run with the men in pursuit. At this moment, a sheriff's deputy arrived and chased George across an alfalfa field in his car. When he quickly caught up to him, George turned and fired two shots at the deputy's vehicle, shattering the windshield. This emptied George's shotgun, and the deputy was able to capture him by pulling his pistol on him. George then surrendered without further incident. Again, this is all difficult to verify due to the passage of time. At this point, it's important to note that although sexual assault was a leading excuse for why so many black men were lynched in the South leading up to 1930, sociological researchers of the era from the newly formed Commission on Interracial Cooperation determined that lynchings were carried out mainly due to racist, economic insecurities slash jealousies, and perceived missteps in etiquette. The NAACP, founded in 1909, had been struggling since 1915 to persuade the U.S. Congress to adopt a federal anti-lynching law. This was effectively terminated by Southern congressmen using the filibuster to drag out proceedings. To counter the bill, they promised instead to confront any sexual assault accusations with swift legal justice. This was ostensibly to protect black men from vigilantes, a promise which, especially back then, must have seemed transparently inadequate and patronizing. This was also the era of Jim Crow, the white supremacist, segregationist response to the Reconstruction era in the southern United States that ended in 1877, as well as the economic depression of the 1890s, for which African Americans and ethnic minorities were scapegoated. Jim Crow laws officially ended in the 1960s, although in practice they, as well as their legacy and sentiments, live on. One example of this is the widely divergent forms of quote-unquote justice that have been meted out for decades based upon skin color, including extrajudicial punishments. George was charged with one count of rape and almost immediately confessed to Pearl's updated account of events which makes one wonder what pressure was applied to gain such a quick and acquiescent confession. He sat in the small county jail in Sherman, awaiting his trial, which I assume was a penalty phase since he had already confessed. It was set to take place on May 9th, just four days later, the soonest possible trial date allowed in Texas. Pearl's family opposed a change of venue and insisted that the trial take place in Sherman, Remember, her paternal uncle was a prominent local police officer. The family seems to have courted the publicity of a local trial audience and the jurors who would be chosen from their neighbors, friends, and acquaintances. A different version of events that circulated through the local African-American community was that George went to his employer's home to ask for the money he had earned and Drew was unwilling to pay him. 
To avoid doing so, he coerced his wife to report that George had assaulted her. Another version is that Pearl had been having a consensual sexual relationship with George and having either been caught or in anticipation of being caught, accused him of rape. Rumors of still another sort spread among local white people. Some believed falsely that George had raped Pearl numerous times that day, had mutilated her breasts, and had given her a sexually transmitted disease. Pearl herself reported one sexual assault, and she had not been mutilated. She had not contracted any disease, and in any case, it would have been medically impossible in 1930 to obtain such test results in just a matter of days. George's wife Molly was interviewed around this time. She reportedly told police that George had commented several times that Pearl was physically attractive and that he had indicated what he intended to do. It seems very strange and unbelievable, however, that a husband would make such a statement to a wife, even if he were plotting such a crime. It seems much more plausible that Molly, as a vulnerable black woman at the mercy of white authority figures in the Jim Crow South, was coerced and or threatened into implicating her husband or that these statements were falsely attributed to her. Aware of local sentiment toward rumors of a black man assaulting a white woman, law enforcement secretly moved George to another jail, 30 miles away. As expected, on the evening of Tuesday, May 6th, a crowd of young men, mostly in their late teens, mobbed the Sherman jail. They demanded that law enforcement hand over the prisoner to them. When a county attorney told them that George had been moved, the mob was unbelieving. They turned a hose on him, threw stones at the jail's windows, and threatened to round the entrance with a telephone pole. You'd expect at this point that there would be some arrests, or at least a few strongly worded orders for the crowd to disperse. Instead, the sheriff meekly allowed the vigilante mob to enter the jail and search it for themselves. Then Pearl's father, Luther Atnip, along with other male members of her family, including probably her uncle who was a Sherman cop, showed up to gently request that the mob leave, assuring them that justice would be served at the trial. Ostensibly, that caused the crowd to break up, although word around town was that the sheriff's wife lit into the men and ordered them to disperse because they were trampling and simply ruining the flower beds she planted around the jailhouse. On the next day, May 7th, the assigned judge in the upcoming trial, afraid of an impending riot, phoned Texas Governor Dan Moody to request that he send the renowned Texas Rangers to Sherman. Moody obliged by assigning Captain Frank Hamer, who would later famously participate in killing the outlaw couple Clyde Barrow and Bonnie Parker four years later in Louisiana. For the detailed story of Bonnie and Clyde, please listen to episode 5 of this podcast. Four Texas Rangers arrived in Sherman on May 8th, the day before the trial was scheduled to begin. In an unlucky coincidence, it had been raining heavily in Sherman for the majority of the previous week. Because of this, sharecroppers and other laborers were unable to work outside, so they had nothing much to do. In addition, word had been spread around Grayson County and nearby communities by one Jeff Jones, a.k.a. Slim. He instigated many of these idle citizens and their families to drive into Sherman to try to attend George Hughes' trial. Jeff Slim Jones was 40 years old, born in Texas, and rumored to be a Ku Klux Klan member. He was described by one local newspaper as tall and gangling. He was summoned to court often for bootlegging liquor and was not a member of any local church, as many were in those days. He is supposed to have traded livestock for a living and did not have much formal education. 
My own research on him suggests that he was still living near Sherman over a decade later during World War II and had misspelled his own place of birth on his draft card, which is not at all surprising. Other than those meager details, not much else is known about him. Within the front lobby of the courthouse were a pair of grand, curved staircases framing each side of the lobby. Both led to the second floor, which housed the courtrooms and offices for the district attorneys, tax collector, assessors, and other county officials. On the morning of Friday, May 9th, George was guided up those stairs in handcuffs by Frank Hamer, three other Texas Rangers, plus four deputy sheriffs. As an angry crowd loitered in the town square outside the courthouse, they were treated to the dramatic sight of an ambulance pulling up. Pearl was then taken out on a stretcher and carried into the building in front of the gaping crowd. She waved gamely at the onlookers, but the sight of the seemingly seriously injured woman enraged them. What does not make sense to me is the theatrics of conspicuously transporting Pearl to the courthouse in an ambulance and bearing her in on a stretcher when immediately after the attack, six days earlier, she was fully able to run across the field to her neighbor's house. Why would she have been unable to walk nearly a full week later? This seems very staged. Additionally, she was not scheduled to testify. The prosecutor planned to simply read her statement into evidence for her. A local attorney had been chosen by the judge to represent George, and jury selection was the first order of business that day. An hour and a half later, this task was completed and a jury was seated. The judge ordered the courtroom closed to spectators due to the potential for disruption. About 50 people were allowed to remain. But by this time, the crowd outdoors had decided to make their way to the courtroom and stood outside, disrupting the proceedings with loud chatter and shouting. Judge Carter ordered the Texas Rangers to escort the crowd back outside, which they did, to the accompaniment of personal threats and obscenities. Some people jeered, calling the Rangers, quote, inward-loving sons of bitches on their way out. At 12.30 p.m., the Farlow's neighbor, George Taylor, was called to the stand as the prosecution's first witness. However, during his testimony, the crowd, which has turned into a mob that included women, again breached the courthouse. The women began urging the men around them to kidnap the prisoner. As the mob began to ascend the stairs, the Texas Rangers, outnumbered, began to pistol-whip them. Somehow they managed to force the mob back outside, but were horrified to see that there were now several thousand people in the courthouse square, including women and children, and a traffic jam surrounding the block. While some of the people on foot were peaceful and simply there to find out what was going on, many were hostile. And I'm going to be naming names because I think it's important that responsible parties are known throughout history. Among those was Susie Christ a 17-year-old senior at Denison High School. She lived in a rented house with her mother and grandmother, who were both widowed and unemployed. She was in the square that day with a female friend. Described as, quote, loud mouth, the two high schoolers, along with an unknown older woman, attempted to incite men in the crowd to again storm the courthouse and seize George. Another familiar face in the forefront was Slim Jones, who, accompanied by other reputed clansmen, took on a leadership role in the mob. Like Susie Christ, a man named Raymond C. Hart, age 37, urged the crowd on by circulating a false rumor that the governor of Texas had ordered the Rangers not to shoot any white citizens, no matter what they did. At 1 p.m., 
the mob made its second aggressive advance into the courthouse, screaming, quote, We'll get the inward. The rangers again pistol whipped those in the front of the crowd and were able to once again force them outside. At this point, Frank Hamer warned Judge Carter that there would be bloodshed that day if the trial continued. Carter immediately ordered a change of venue to another county. Around this time, an 18-year-old named J.R. Milton tore down the American flag flying outside the courthouse. Along with other teenage boys, he shouted at the crowd an invitation to join them if they had, quote, enough red blood to do something about an inward who had raped a white woman. He led others on a third trespass into the courthouse, where one of the Texas Rangers bashed him in the head with a pistol. He ran back outside and presented his bleeding head to the mob, which led to more outraged rabble-rousing. At this point, some men outside tried to ignite sticks of dynamite to throw into the courthouse, but were intercepted by a Texas Ranger with a fire hose. Someone else produced tear gas and threw the bombs into the courthouse. Soon, the gas began seeping into the courtroom itself. Unable to make their way through the fumes in the hallway, those in the second-story room were forced to wait for the fire department to arrive and set up ladders outside the windows. Somehow, it was apparently a medical miracle, Pearl also made her way down a ladder, despite having been immobile only hours earlier. Affected by the tear gas, she made her exit, again by ambulance. As the fumes subsided, the mob made their fourth assault on the courthouse. This time, Frank Hamer was prepared with a shotgun. From where he obtained it, I don't know, but after issuing a warning that was ignored, he aimed low and fired. Two men were wounded, one in the leg and one in the foot. These were a local Sherman man, 30-year-old Dan Shiro, and a former soldier from Bells, where Pearl was born, named Jim Brown. This caused the mob to once again retreat. Shortly after this, the Associated Press reported that the Texas Rangers had been ordered by Governor Moody not to shoot anyone, only to provide protection for George Hughes, quote, if possible. Raymond Hart's disinformation had made it all the way to the country's most reputable wire service. Frank Haver was confused. He knew of no such order. He found Judge Carter and told him that if they were truly not allowed to use their weapons, they would not be able to protect George from the crowd. Carter responded, quote, let's lock him in the big vault. Now this quote-unquote big vault was the largest fireproof reinforced vault in the county. It was built in 1890 when land was at its most valuable in Grayson County because its intended purpose was to preserve land deeds and abstracts. The concrete vault, reinforced with steel, was located in the northeast corner of the building's second floor and measured 40 feet by 40 feet by 40 feet in size. Carter was surmising that this would be the safest place to house George away from the crowd. George was placed in the vault with nothing but a stool on which to sit and a large bucket of water, not knowing how long he would be in there. The judge then telephoned the state governor to request he send out the National Guard to assist in safely moving George back to the jail. He was advised that a platoon would arrive imminently. No sooner had Frank Hamer ushered George into the vault than part of the mob made its fifth entry into the courthouse. Racists are persistent and nothing else. Thirty minutes after George was led to the vault, the mob began breaking courthouse windows with bottles and rocks, following the lead of an unknown woman. At 2.30 p.m., 
a 17-year-old local named J.B. McCaslin, a.k.a. Screw, tossed a five-gallon can of gasoline through a first-story window. McCaslin, a high school dropout, had a previous criminal record for stealing cattle. A 15-year-old named Alvin Gordon was the one to throw several lit matches after the gasoline can. He then announced, quote, Now the damned old courthouse is on fire. Remember, the building's interior was almost entirely wood. Firemen were already on scene, and the last few people inside the courtroom itself were evacuated by ladder. Hamer recalled that during this time, the flames leapt up to the second floor ceiling via the grand stairways. Hamer also stated that he ran through the offices in search of any remaining court employees who might be able to open the vault but could find no one. He then realized this was futile. The flames were already blocking the entrance to the vault. Hamer and the rangers were the last to exit the old courthouse alive. As firefighters tried to extinguish the fire, several of the mob's leaders slashed their fire hoses with a knife and an axe. Another started a fist fight with one firefighter, and others began throwing rocks at the emergency workers. At least one of the rioters was heard to say, quote, Let her burn down. The taxpayers will put her back which suggests that this person or persons were either unemployed or managing to evade paying their own taxes. Others in the mob seemed possessed by the fire, screaming for George to be roasted and burnt alive. All of Sherman's white demographics were in attendance, women, men, and children, with the interesting exception of women in their 20s, the age bracket of my great-grandmother at the time. One older woman actually awakened her two small grandsons from sleep at the hour of midnight to go watch the lynching, as though she were taking them out for an ice cream cone. Frank Hamer asked one non-violent bystander to immediately drive him and the other Texas Rangers to the town of Howe, nine miles away. He wanted to call the Texas governor himself to report what had happened, but he didn't want to do it in Sherman. In 1930, Telephone operators still used huge switchboards and cables to manually connect callers. They had the ability to listen in on phone calls, and Hamer wanted his conversation to be completely confidential. While waiting for the call to be connected, and this could take a minute or two back then, Hamer heard the operator speak to someone, probably a co-worker in the same room, expressing pro-lynching sentiments and their approval of the courthouse fire. Hamer hung up on the operator, and somehow procured another ride to the town of McKinney, 25 miles away. From there, he requested a much larger deployment of the National Guard. Governor Moody deployed National Guard troops from the cities of Dallas and Denison to report to Sherman, as well as two additional Texas Rangers who were in Dallas at the time. One of these men was another famous Ranger named Manuel Trezazas Gonzalez, known as Lone Wolf Gonzalez. Born in Spain in 1891, he had served as a major in the Mexican Army at age 20, then became a special agent in the U.S. Treasury Department. He was a Texas Ranger for 13 years, during which time the Sherman Riot occurred. Afterwards, as the head of the Texas Bureau of Intelligence, he had a major role in creating one of the best crime labs in the U.S. In the 1940s, he became the first Spanish-American Texas Ranger captain. After retiring, Gonzalez moved to Hollywood, and became a consultant for numerous films, radio, and TV shows. Before doing so, one of his assignments as a captain was to oversee the investigation of the Texarkana Phantom serial killer. 
1976 slasher film is based upon this case that was unfortunately never solved. The film's title, The Town That Dreaded Sundown, ominously brings to mind sundown towns scattered not only in the South, but all across the United States. These so-called sundown towns have existed since the U.S. was still a colony, and undoubtedly still exist. Depending upon the era and geographical area, these towns would sometimes, but not always, post warning signs at the city limits, warning people of African, Chinese, Mexican, Native American, or Jewish descent not to remain there after dark. Some towns banned these races and ethnicities, while others allowed them to perform manual or domestic labor during the day. After sundown, though, they were especially vulnerable to violence, including lynching. Sherman was not a sundown town, but the lynching and other violence happened anyway on the night of May 9, 1930. By 4 p.m., there were 5,000 people in the town square with only 10 police officers, all that Sherman employed, who decided that their best tactic would be to direct traffic. Remember again that one of the officers was Pearl's uncle. The courthouse's interior was completely burnt out by this time, except for the vault, which somehow seemed to remain suspended on the second floor. Speculation ran high among the townspeople about whether George was still alive in the vault or had been spirited without notice back to the jail. Of course, he wasn't alive, but the jail had become an informal command center for the Texas Rangers, including Gonzalez at this point, as well as some local officers and a six-man posse from the nearby town of Denton. Since the jail was staffed by the county sheriff's department, I assumed that either these officers had blown off traffic control as well as mob control, or that my source confused sheriff's deputies with police officers, which is a common mistake. The posse had been sent to Sherman just minutes earlier, after the sheriff of Denton heard a rumor that the mob was planning on hanging the Grayson County Sheriff at the jail in Sherman. Around 6 p.m., a small platoon of the National Guard arrived at the courthouse square, bearing bayonets. Immediately, the mob surrounded them. Again, amazingly, women and children were among those leading the mob, who threw bottles and rocks at the guardsmen. There were two serious injuries at this point, one to a guardsman and the other to a rioter. Because of the women and children present, the platoon decided not only to retreat, but to leave Sherman altogether. At 6.30, a larger contingent of 55 National Guardsmen arrived in Sherman and went straight to the jail. There they found the local law enforcement, the Texas Rangers, and the posse from Denton barricaded inside from the large mob that had made its way to the jail, believing that George was being protected there. The mob threw several sticks of dynamite at the jail, but no one was injured. But Lone Wolf Gonzalez had had enough. Arming himself with two pistols, a shotgun, and a submachine gun, he confronted the mob while they mocked and taunted him. After ordering them to leave, to no avail, he shot four of them who appeared to be the most aggressive. Two juveniles were wounded, a 16-year-old who was shot in the chest and a 17-year-old shot through the thigh, as well as two men, one a local bricklayer, who were both wounded in the neck. It's believed that more were actually wounded, but did not report it or seek professional medical assistance for fear of implicating themselves in the riot and subsequent lynching. Night fell, compounding the horrific darkness that had already overtaken the people of Sherman. 
Sunset that night would have been about 7.15 p.m. At 8 p.m., the remaining National Guardsmen were dispatched to the courthouse to recover George, but once again, they were assailed by the bloodthirsty mob. On a truly unsettling note, the mob was assisted by a young girl who had set up a soda pop stand in the courthouse square and was selling these soft drinks as though she were at a carnival or sporting event. She provided the mob with empty glass bottles, which they threw at the guardsmen. Private Perry McLean was hit in the head with a flying brick and fell to the ground. He was instantly surrounded by rioters who stole his rifle and ammunition belt. The mob then badly injured two captains of the platoon who attempted to rescue McLean. In addition, two other guardsmen were wounded by Ryder's gunfire. Returning fire, one of the guardsmen shot one man in the crowd. A woman in a crazed frenzy, that's the only way I can even describe it, actually held her baby up in the air over her head. Yes, parents brought their babies to a race riot that day and screamed, Quote, shoot it, you yellow, inward-loving soldiers, shoot it. Yes, she called her baby an it and willingly subjected her child to the very real possibility of being killed. Her racism took precedent over her baby's life. That's how powerful racism can be. The platoon was again outnumbered. They retreated back to the relative safety of the jail with the rioters in close pursuit. It's never mentioned whether any prisoners unrelated to the mob were inside the jailhouse, although since it was a county jail, I assume there were. What we do know is that at this time, the lawmen barricaded in the jail included Frank Hamer, who had returned after making his phone call to the governor, and the other Texas Rangers. A few police officers from Dallas had arrived, and the 55 National Guardsmen were there, along with about 20 law enforcement officers from surrounding areas. Part of the issue with handling and preventing more violence was that this last group, the local police, were loath to confront the mob with force. They claimed that doing so might prompt the rioters to burn downtown businesses, and of course there would have been unspoken issues of sympathy toward local citizens in the mob, who, I surmise, might have been friends and fellow racists. There was also a hesitancy to use force with so many women and children in the large crowds. Another call was made to mobilize additional National Guard troops from Dallas, but their estimated time of arrival was still several hours out. The lawmen at the jail decided to remain there, which became another issue. There was no one to protect George's body, citizens who would have been especially vulnerable targets of the mob, or the city itself. At 9 p.m., the sky began to drizzle rain. The crowd of rioters and onlookers was now estimated at close to 10,000, as people from out of town began to hear news about what was happening in Sherman on the radio. As if a stage production was about to begin for the benefit of the onlookers, a spotlight suddenly snapped on, illuminating the east side of the now pitiful courthouse skeleton. Just a warning, the scene that is about to unfold is particularly horrifying. Clan member Slim Jones and a teenage boy known as Duck Roach climbed up to the vault still suspended on what was left of the second floor and lit several sticks of dynamite. Nothing happened. Next, a local iron worker named Horace Reynolds went up the ladder with a welding torch. The vault was of such good quality that it took two hours to damage one small area of its outer steel. Then four men broke through the concrete layers with hammers and chisels. 
When another small opening had been created, Reynolds torched the inner steel wall. At 11.40, Slim Jones stuck lit sticks of dynamite through the breach, all the way into the vault, which blasted it open. The spectators, as though cast in a ghoulish musical, spontaneously burst into song. The completely inappropriate tune was Happy Days Are Here Again, which was a recent hit. It would later become Franklin D. Roosevelt's 1932 campaign theme song. Duck Roach and Horace Reynolds climbed into the vault and tossed George's body out. Shrapnel from the explosion had caused injuries to his head. The body, which had had no contact with fire, slid down the ladder and hit the ground below. Two women fainted, but most of the crowd cheered. Now we enter the next chapter of Nightmare Fuel. This is my third and final content warning. One of the men wrapped a chain around the neck of George's corpse and prepared to hang it from a tree right next to the courthouse. But Slim Jones interrupted by yelling, quote, Take him to Inward Town. This is a good place to stop for a moment and remind ourselves that the act of lynching isn't just violence perpetuated upon living bodies. Heinous acts committed against the dead also count as lynching because this type of violence is largely symbolic. It's as much a warning to others as it is a physical crime against the victim. George's body was dragged to a Model A Ford Roadster, driven by one Leo Luton of nearby Denison. There was another young man in the car, as well as two young women, like some kind of a macabre double date. Luton allowed the chain around George's neck to be attached to his rear bumper. As he began to drive in the direction of the African-American district, a young man named Bill Sophie jumped into the rear bumper in close proximity to George's body, and at least six others jumped into the car's running boards and hood. They were followed by a huge procession of 2,000 people, including women, children, and babies, as the body bounced along the road. Exactly one half mile from the courthouse, the car came to a stop at a cottonwood tree that stood in front of the black-owned Smith Hotel and Goodson's Drugstore. After the chain around George's neck was attached to one of the tree branches, Slim Jones led his fellow murderers on a looting expedition, adding to their list of crimes. Stolen items from the drugstore included chairs, display cases, dry goods boxes, cigarettes, cigars, and junk food. The men created a funeral pyre of the items made of wood. Then, in an act that intertwined racism and sexual jealousy, Jones cut off George's genitals with a knife before dousing the body with coal oil and setting it and the wood on fire. As author John Bassenecker puts it, the gleeful, cheering mob of about 2,000 people crowded around. They enjoyed cigarettes, cigars, candy, and soft drinks that had been looted from the drugstore as they watched George's body shrivel up and burn. Around 1987, an unidentified person told local academic researcher Edward J. Phillips that a quote-unquote collector was in possession of a piece of Hughes's anatomy cut from the corpse nearly 60 years earlier. Since we know that Jones cut off George's genitals, we can assume that this is the part of his anatomy this person was referencing, although we cannot be sure of the validity of the claim or the continued existence of this macabre souvenir. And even after this ultimate act of depravity, Slim Jones and his fellow lynchers were still not satiated. 
Jones set another fire, this time behind the Smith Hotel. As flames engulfed the hotel, the lynchers vowed to burn the entirety of the African-American business and residential districts. They continued down the block, looting and then setting fire to all the Black-owned buildings on Mulberry Street. After that, they moved on to residences. One home was owned by an African-American doctor, but the lynchers first helpfully moved the possessions of the white man who was renting the property into the street before they burned the house. The goal? To destroy black residents' prosperity and drive them out of town. If additional lives were lost in the process, well, that was likely a bonus to these lynchers. Aware of these facts, more than a thousand African-American residents had already fled their homes earlier in the day. About 100 in the African-American community who owned cars were able to flee town with sacks containing their most cherished possessions. Many of them went to Dallas and never returned. Others were forced to hide in places like sewers, pig pens, and brush throughout the rainy night and part of the next day. Local state law enforcement advised those who reached out to them for help to either leave town or seek refuge in the homes of white friends. Indeed, some were protected and hidden by their white employers or anti-racist white residents. As a reminder, the local firefighters' hoses had all been slashed by the courthouse mob. The black-owned businesses, now in ruins, had been valued at up to $100,000, which would be over $1.6 in today's money. To add insult to injury, clauses had been written to the building's insurance policies, which denied coverage on damage caused by riots. It was a devastating loss to the community, through no fault of its own. Bill Sophie, the rear bumper ghoul, who gleefully rode on the bumper of the car that dragged George across town, is a notable part of the historical record. He was 22 years old at the time and lived in Sherman. He was a Texas native, but his 65-year-old father, Salem Sophie, had immigrated to Sherman from Syria back in 1888. Salem now owned a home and a grocery store nearby. Although his son Bill was a racist who participated in George Hughes's lynching, Salem was a hero that night. When the lynchers approached the street on which Salem and his African-American neighbors lived, Salem boldly told them that he owned the entire block, which was not true, thus saving his neighbors' homes. From 11.30 p.m. to about 3 a.m., 300 National Guard reinforcements finally arrived, bringing four machine guns with them. At 2.15 a.m., 700 rioters remained in the streets, some of them attempting to burn down the Fred Douglas Elementary School that black children attended, named for the famous former slave-turned-abolitionist. The National Guard prevented this and blocked entry to the school. They also cut down George's body. Both of the black-owned mortuaries had been torched, so a commander ordered a white funeral director to arrange the burial. It cost about $17 and was billed to the county. The city of Sherman was placed under martial law by Texas Governor Dan Moody the next evening, Saturday night, 10.30 p.m. on the 10th of May, 1930. Sherman remained under military control for two weeks, which was lifted on May 24th. The morning following the riot and lynching, a British reporter from the London Evening Standard placed an eight-minute transatlantic telephone call to Texas Governor Moody, a costly means of communication at the time. 
The reporter spent an expensive three minutes or so being transferred from the phone operator to the governor's mansion and then attempting to refocus Moody's groggy attention at 7.30 a.m. his time from the hot weather to the crime. Please note that the interview includes at least one racial slur, which I will again replace with a euphemism. As reported by the newspaper's representative, Moody spoke, quote, in a rich, drawling voice with long, rising bell sounds and explosive consonants to tell a story devoid of compassion or nuance. He began, Well, it's been a mighty tough break around the neighborhood of Sherman for the last 48 hours for the boys of the National Guard. You get me? I ain't allowing them 300 boys to start pulling their guns on a mob of men and women just on account of an inward. They've got to do just what they can with their tear gas bombs and nightsticks. To interject, nightsticks are, of course, police batons. Understand, if they use their guns, it's sure lead to lead to a hellfire mix-up. The boys have got bashed about a bit, but they ain't crying their eyes out. Well, it's our law here in Texas that if a black man even leads a little white girl by the hand, he's lynched, if the guard don't get there in time to stop it. Maybe you can't realize that, but maybe you can when I tell you that there's one railway wagon for whites and one for blacks here in the southern states. Texas people go mad if a black touches a white woman. When they saw Mrs. Barlow lying in the stretcher, they went white hot. Then the mob went screaming mad. Women got kerosene and the men dashed it all around the courthouse and fired it. I got a message immediately and so I ordered reinforcements to get to the spot and gave the commanding officer the order to hold the black man if possible, but not to shoot one white man. Our boys had to quit the courthouse in the inward. He was still alive, although mad with fright. But he didn't live long. The smoke suffocated him. The crowd went away for an hour, but came back later demanding his body. They wanted to make sure he was dead. Seventy of our boys were called to defend the courthouse, and three thousand townsmen rushed him suddenly, firing over their heads, throwing sticks, bricks, bottles, and scrapping like prairie coyotes. Hundreds of women ran out of their houses when the news was shouted to them from men in the streets that Hughes's body had been dragged from the vault. They clapped, cheered, and danced with the men. Right in the center of Sherman, they erected a wooden cross. The women threw some of their clothes at the base of it and set a light. That's about all. But I guess it's just about as bad a case of lynching crowd gone mad as the southern states have heard in years. The reporter wished him good luck. All righty, the governor replied jovially. I guess this is where I eat breakfast and then start the day's work. After the interview was published, Moody was unhappy with the article, claiming the reporter had made most of it up and had only asked him about the weather and if the defendant had been killed by the mob. Moody denied ordering the National Guard not to fire upon the mob. Arrests soon followed. The most ironic of these was the arrest of a prominent African-American physician who had protected his home from becoming tenderwood by brandishing a gun at the rioters and arsonists. Following the questioning of 66 people, 29 others were arrested, including two or three women. Of these, 14 white men were indicted for the following charges, rioting, engaging in rioting to commit arson, burglary with explosives to commit arson, and engaging in rioting to commit murder. 
A sort of old-school GoFundMe was performed for those who'd broken the law, with canvassers going house to house in an attempt to collect money for their defense. The Pharaoh-slash-Atnip family was cleared of all responsibility for the lynching and riot. The ministers of four large and prominent churches in Sherman denounced the riots and lynching from their pulpits. When some ministers of smaller churches tried to do the same, they were silenced by their parishioners, who threatened to leave and disband the congregation if their clergy spoke out. One congregation actually did desert their pastor for criticizing the mob's actions. A white minister from one of the larger churches attempted to raise money to assist the African Americans in the community who had lost property, but the county attorney asked him to stop, claiming that it would somehow interfere with upcoming court cases. Thus, no action was ever taken to rebuild the African American business district, or to rebuild their homes, or assist George's wife. Those indicted included the notorious instigator and suspected Klansman Jeff Slim Jones and the teenage cattle thief, J.B. McClaslin. Bill Sophie, one of the most depraved rioters, whose father heroically saved his black-owned neighborhood, was also indicted, along with Horace Reynolds, the man who was able to breach the vault that contained George's body. Reynolds was a plumber and the only indicted man who owned property or was active in his church. Most of the other middle-aged defendants were impoverished husbands and fathers with but little education. Some of the younger defendants in their teens and early twenties already had criminal records. The indicted fell strictly into these two categories, white men in their forties and white men in their teens to early twenties. It has been suggested that these men with little to no social capital were scapegoated so that others who were more distinguished in the community could escape scrutiny. Trials were postponed until November 1930 due to the county attorney claiming that he was too quote-unquote busy to try the 14 indicted men. By that time, 10 of them were released on bail thanks to the proto-GoFundMe efforts of those who sympathized with the racism and destruction of Sherman. Bail had been set at $5,000 for 13 of the defendants, which would be just over $83,000 each in today's money. Horace Reynolds' bail was set lower at $2,000. This means that in this economically depressed area, during the Great Depression, in fact, people were willing to donate well over $1,112,000 for these racist and violent men because not only were they able to fund their release, they also retained defense attorneys thanks to these donations. The presiding judge ordered a change of venue from Sherman to Dallas, Texas due to local sentiments and the overwhelming publicity. But when jury selection began, 60 out of 68 potential jurors declared that they would not even consider convicting Jeff Slim Jones, even if the evidence against him was compelling. Another change of venue occurred, this time from Dallas to Austin, Texas, about 260 miles south of Sherman. Yet again, the court officials there made the excuse that they were simply too busy with their own local caseload to add the trials to their docket. They did manage to get around to hearing two separate charges against one defendant, J.B. McClaslin. He was sentenced to two years in prison to be served concurrently with a chicken-stealing charge. All of the 66 charges against the other 13 indicted men were dropped after pending for two years and one month following the riot. 
Now, primary sources for this case sometimes report that there were two convictions, often mistaken for convictions of two defendants, but my independent research reveals that there were only two separate court sentences solely for McClaslin, one for a guilty plea on a rioting charge, and another for a jury conviction on a second charge of arson. Three other charges that would have held him responsible for the murder of George Hughes were dropped. Even the KKK instigator, Jeff Slim Jones, got away scot-free. In all, while there was a rush to try George for his alleged assault in less than a week, the half-hearted promise to get those into court who murdered or contributed to his murder was postponed until the general public forgot about it and then it was quietly dismissed. George would never receive justice, either as an accused defendant or as a murder victim. George was 41 at his death. The official cause listed on his death certificate is, quote, suffocation in vault at courthouse. It occurred at 11.40 p.m. on May 9, 1930. There is so little known about him that his death certificate is mostly blank. He was buried the next day at the Grayson County Farm Cemetery, which was known as the Poor Farm at the time. There are currently less than 24 tombstones and markers at this burial ground for the indigent, and Hughes's grave is unmarked. The exact location of his burial there is uncertain, but it's believed to be near the back fence of the property. The reason why the location of Hughes's body is uncertain is because, in an uncanny coincidence, the Grayson County Poor Farm Building, which housed indigent citizens, as well as all the property's resident and cemetery records, burned to the ground in 1946. The infamous Grayson County Courthouse building was valued at $60,000 in 1930, which is about $948,000 in today's U.S. dollars. It was not replaced until 1936, when a four-story concrete building in a basic modern style of architecture was erected in its place. Back in 1897, a 45-foot-tall statue was unveiled on the courthouse lawn. It was a Confederate monument, a memorial to those who died fighting against the United States in the Civil War. It cost $5,000 at the time and was the first Confederate statue to be placed on state-owned land in the U.S. in the wake of post-Reconstruction-era resentments in the South. In recent history, in the wake of three different cultural awakenings, the 2014 death of 18-year-old Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri at the hands of police officer Darren Wilson, the Charlottesville Unite the Right white supremacist rally of 2017, and the 2020 death of George Floyd at the hands of police officer Derek Chauvin, protests and petitions have called for the removal of the courthouse's Confederate statue. One resident of Sherman, Terrell Hughes, has stated that the intent is not to quote-unquote erase history, but to start it, an act that requires a restart or a reset by removing the history of hate that the statue represents for many. Hughes noted in 2020 that those who resist this change are, quote, not thinking about the history of the African Americans that were whipped, beaten, enslaved, raped, murdered. A statue of that caliber of confederacy symbolizes hate for the African American people. If you're wondering about the origins of Terrell Hughes's last name, he does claim to be a descendant of none other than George Hughes. 
In May 2020, nearly 90 years to the day after George Hughes' lynching, a significant protest against police brutality and the contemporary lynching of George Floyd took place at the Sherman Confederate statue. In an entirely separate issue from the Confederate statue protest, there is no such monument to memorialize the lynching of George Hughes or the burning of government property that took place there. Renowned local historian Melissa Till, who grew up near Sherman, spearheaded a current movement in 2020 advocating for an historical marker to place the Sherman lynching and riot on the map. Her Facebook group, called Historical Marker for the 1930 Sherman Riot, has attracted the attention of the Washington Post and other major news outlets. For over six months at the time of this recording, Melissa Till and local advocates have attended county commissioners' court meetings, town halls, and church services to explain why the marker is so important in honoring history. Also, for over six months, the Grayson County commissioners and other officials have stymied their efforts to place an historical marker of the events of May 9, 1930. Here's Melissa Till in her own words about her interest in this case, the additional background research she's conducted, and how each of us can help her in preventing this historical event from being lost to time. Historian Melissa Teal is here with me today to discuss her work with trying to bring awareness to this crime and history that so affected this area of North Texas. Welcome, Melissa, to Class A Felons. Thanks for taking the time to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm glad to be on. You're so very welcome. So I have a few questions that I wanted to, to talk with you about. I was so interested in your own history and background. Uh, my first question for you is, are you from Grayson County where the lynching of George Hughes occurred? I am. I actually grew up in Grayson County. I went to school in a, a small town called Tom Bean. I went through a elementary, middle school, high school there. I graduated. I moved to another small town called Gunner and still in Grayson County. So I have lived in Grayson County my entire life, grew up here and still live here today. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I love the area. As I mentioned before to you, I visited only once. I would, I would love to visit again. But how far back do your family roots go in this area of Texas? It goes back pretty far. I know at least a couple of great grandparents back. My family is farmers and ranchers. So we have farmed and, and ranched the land here in Grayson County. I still have family members, uncles that farm the land here in a little town called Dorchester, not too far from Sherman. So we've lived here for generations, mainly as farmers and ranchers. Can you tell me a little bit about your education and your field or, or fields of study? Sure. So I graduated high school in Tom Bean, and then I decided I didn't need college, and I, I just kind of worked for a while, and I'd always wanted to go back. So I decided, you know what, I'm going to go back to college to get a degree in history. So I went to Texas Women's University, and that's where I got my degree in history on, on my undergrad. And then I decided to keep going. So I got my graduate degree, my master's degree in history from Texas Women's University. And my master's is actually in history with an emphasis in public history. So what that means is I specialize in teaching the public about history, which would include historical markers, museums, things like that. That's fantastic. And that is a much needed field. This is a very valuable field that you're in. Excellent. So now I want to move on to asking you about this very disturbing topic that we're here to discuss today. 
How did you first become aware of Mr. Hughes's lynching? Well, living and growing up in Grayson County, I heard it about from time to time, a lot of times the context of the courthouse burning. So not necessarily the racism that was tied to it, but just the courthouse was burned. So anytime in Grayson County, when you want to do any genealogy research or research your ancestors, you can't go back further than 1930 a lot of times because all the records were burned in the courthouse. So that came up quite a bit as I was older and I would just do research on my family, you know, ancestry.com became popular and you can never go back prior to 1930, which was a problem because there's a lot of things that happened prior to 1930. So that was come up a lot, just the fact that the courthouse burned. And it wasn't until I started researching more, I realized the gravity of what happened and how extreme it was and, and the destruction that came along with that historical event of 1930. You know, it really strikes me how similar my story is. You know, and I told you about this when we talked earlier about this is the same way that I discovered, you know, what happened to Mr. Hughes was within the context of the courthouse burning. And it was left at that. All the way out here in California, it seems like our experiences were similar and we're only given the context of the courthouse. And then we both became more curious about investigating, okay, what actually happened? And then we find out how deeply this is connected with racism. I also wanted to ask you, what stands out the most to you personally about this horrific crime that happened in 1930? I think what stood out for me the most, the crime itself was horrible. Just the fact that this man was killed, he was lynched, he was burned, the courthouse was burned, the Black Business District was destroyed. But I think what has stood out to me now the most is the efforts to hide it. Almost immediately after this happened, Grayson County took the stance that this was outsiders. This, this wasn't people from Grayson County, which we know is false because the 14 people that were charged were all from Grayson County. It was definitely people from Grayson County that did this. There's people that came from all over, but it was people from Grayson County that engaged in this and that need to hide it and to distance the county from it still goes on today, 91 years later. So I think the most shocking thing to me, besides the horrificness of the crime, was the fact that even we're almost a century out and we still haven't come to terms with it and the powers that be in Grayson County still won't even acknowledge that this happened. That just kind of blows my mind. Yeah, that's unreal. So what I want to ask you next is, have you been in contact with any descendants or family of George Hughes? Well, I've been, I've talked to some people from the county that have the last names of Hughes, and that is also an ongoing type of mystery. Some of the Hughes family believes that they're related to this George Hughes, and just doing the genealogy, you know, the research, there was a George Hughes in Sherman or from the Sherman family, but he died in 1920. So we're still trying to research who George Hughes was and to make sure who his family members are. So that's kind of still a mystery of who's actually related to George Hughes, if they're related to the right George Hughes and that kind of thing. Yes, one of the many mysteries of this case, I think. And as you mentioned, it's so difficult to do that sort of genealogical work because so many records were burned. Right. And we know that George Hughes completed, the last thing he completed officially was a 1930 census. So he was living in Sherman. He went by the name George Hughes. He was married to a woman named Molly. So we know all those things because of that 1930 census, but tracking him back further has been difficult. And then also finding out what happened to Molly, his wife, has also been difficult. 
Right. Difficult, if not impossible. Right. Right. Tell me about your work with the historical marker. Well, this started in June of last year. So after George Floyd was murdered, there, you know, there was protests and things going on and I felt moved to do something. And my thought is, what can I contribute? And I have training as a historian. So I thought this is something that I can do. This is missing from the historical record. So starting in June, I began to work on this project. So it's been difficult along the way, because like I said, since the beginning, when this happened in 1930, the position of the county is to ignore it. So trying to get people to talk about it and to recognize it has not been an easy task. But right now, we've gotten through the Grayson County Historical Commission. They have said this meets the requirements for a Texas historical marker. So now we're at the Grayson County Commissioners. We have to get their approval to put this marker at the courthouse. Since this marker is getting placed on county land, we have to have that approval from the Grayson County Commissioners. So right now, that's kind of where we're stuck. There has been a request sent to the commissioners on March 9th. I sent a request to be on their agenda along with our historical commission. And at this point, they've completely ignored every request to be on the agenda. They haven't even sent a response or acknowledgement that this request has been made. So we're kind of stuck at the commissioner's level. And wasn't there sort of an attempt by them to shuffle you to one committee or another? There was. So before I went to the historical commission, I went to the Grayson County uh, commissioners. I said, I need approval from the commissioners for this historical marker to be placed at the courthouse. Well, and they said, well, you need to go to the historical commission and they have to approve it first. So I went to the historical commission and they said, well, we don't approve it. You need to get approval from the commissioner's court. So it was kind of this back and forth effort. And I felt like I was just getting moved from one commissioner's court to a county, getting moved all over the place. And finally, we had gotten to the step where the Grayson County Historical Commission has said, yes, this does meet the requirements. It can move forward to the commissioner's court. So we have finally got to that point, which is a victory in itself, that we've got past one step in the process. Right. And congratulations. I mean, any victory is, in fact, something to celebrate. Right. I would love to know, what can I and our listeners do to help you in this? Well, to get this Texas historical marker, we're going to have to have support. Like I said, this is not going to be easy by any means, but the more public support we have, the better chance we have to get this Texas historical marker. So what your listeners can do, what you can do, I have a Facebook page and it's called Historical Marker for the 1930 Sherman Riot. You can go and like that page and follow that page. And I put uh, the history on that page and I also put any updates. The next thing we can do is actually contact the Grayson County Commissioners. So if you go to Google, you can just Google Grayson County Commissioners Court. You'll find Judge Bill Majors. You'll also have a list of the other commissioners and their email addresses are listed. So people could email them and just say, hey, we support this historical marker. This is an important part of history. Just to let them know that there is support behind this historical marker. Excellent. I will certainly do that. And I hope that all of my listeners will as well. You know, this is such an important issue. It's been pushed under the rug for decades and decades now. It needs to be brought out to light. I think the era of secrecy is over with technology. This information is at our fingertips. We can look at it. We can study it. The idea that we're hiding this has just gotten to be silly. This marker is not controversial in the fact that it didn't or didn't happen. No one's arguing historical significance. It happened. It's historically important. 
to me, the only thing controversial is the fact that Grayson County is ignoring it. The way they're handling it is controversial, but not the fact that it happened or it didn't happen. Exactly. The fact that it happened is indisputable. Right. So speaking of bringing information to light, you mentioned to me in our earlier talk that you were contacted by someone who discovers some extremely intriguing items from a local garage sale that are related to this case. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So one thing that's pretty interesting about this is the efforts that went to hiding what happened. So there's some things that were at Austin College, a local college here that got removed. There was a church registry that pages actually got cut out with people's names on it from this date. A man contacted me that had went to a Denison garage sale about 30 years ago. And he had just was, you know, he liked to go to garage sales and there were some bags of trash that these people were going to throw away. And he's like, hey, can I have it and go through it? The lady was like, yeah, sure, fine. Well, he got home and went through it and there was pictures of George Hughes when he was killed. And then after it looks like maybe at a funeral home that were just thrown in the trash. And it turns out this house, the man believes was a detective, a prior detective in Denison, a previous detective. So these artifacts and historical photos were just going to be put in the trash. So there's no telling what all has been lost through time because the need to hide what happened was so strong that things were just getting thrown out things were getting cut out of documents. So that was a really interesting find that a guy thought to save those after he went to that garage sale. It was pretty interesting. Wow, that is incredible. Do you know where those photos are now? I have those photos now. And my plan with the photos is to give them to a museum. So I have not decided on which museum to go with yet. I'm looking into the Equal Justice Initiative. They have a museum. There's also Civil Rights Museum in, I believe it's in Memphis, or it might be Nashville, but it's in Tennessee. So I'm looking into that as well. So I want to get them into the hands of a museum so other people can use them and see them, to see the aftermath of what happened, then use them in teaching and research later on as well. That's fantastic. That's very similar to what Emmett Till's mother, Mimi, did. That was part of her plan when she had an open casket public funeral for her son. She said she wanted everyone to see the aftermath and to be able to visually and just sort of viscerally experience the horrors of racism. Right. By her doing that, it made such a huge impact because they printed that in newspapers. It just really showed the brutality of what was taking place. Absolutely. And I appreciate you getting a hold of those and making this very important decision on where they should end up. We appreciate that. Uh, Melissa, I want to again, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Your work is so valuable and I appreciate you and what you do. Thank you. Oh, and thank you for having me and for spreading the word on this Texas historical marker. Uh, I think it's long overdue and I appreciate you and your listeners and like my Facebook page, email the Grayson County Commissioners and hopefully we can get this marker going. Can you tell us again the name of your Facebook page? I can. It's historical marker for the 1930 Sherman riot. Thank you so much, Melissa. I appreciate it. Thank you. Melissa has now also set up a website called ShermanRiot.org, where you can sign the petition to have an historical marker placed at the courthouse. Following my trip to Texas, I returned home via the Los Angeles International Airport on the night of April 27, 1992. 
The 101 freeway, which would have taken my traveling party straight home, was not yet completed, and so we took streets as we always did whenever we were in the nearby city of Inglewood. As an aside for fellow cemetery crawlers, we passed the Inglewood Cemetery on our way home, where my great-grandfather's parents were buried near famous people like actors Betty Grable, Cesar Romero, singing legends Ella Fitzgerald, Etta James, and Ray Charles, burlesque dancer Gypsy Rose Lee, boxer Sugar Ray Robinson, former Los Angeles Mayor Tom Bradley, and members of O.J. Simpson's criminal defense team, Johnny Cochran and Robert Kardashian. Paul Byrne, the husband of silver screen star Jean Harlow, whose mysterious death remains Hollywood legend, is also interred there, and my grandparents had prepaid plots that awaited their own permanent residence. We drove through the nearby intersection of Florence and Normandy, and I settled back in my seat, knowing that we were now almost back home in Los Angeles, and Sherman would soon be just a memory. The very next afternoon, April 28, 1992, the Los Angeles riots began. The area of most intense rioting, where Reginald Denny was dragged out of his truck and severely beaten as a helicopter hovered overhead to capture the entire crime on film, was the intersection of Florence and Normandy, where I had just been the previous night. Exactly eight months later to the day, my great-grandmother passed away, and I retraced our route, this time in a limousine that followed her hearse to the cemetery, past the rubble of burnt buildings that still remained. She had lived just long enough to have had one last trip home. The Farlows went on to have three more children. Thirteen years after George Hughes' lynching, the Farlows were still in the area, living in Sherman. In 1943, Pearl died while giving birth to her sixth child. The infant, a girl named Alice Marie, either died the same day or was stillborn. Pearl's cause of death was cardiac failure due to toxemia, a common and obviously potentially fatal pregnancy-related condition, one which I suffered myself when I gave birth to my own daughter. Pearl and her daughter were buried together. Based upon an early and local newspaper article that claims George Hughes's actual last name or alias was Jackson, my own research suggests that his wife Molly may have passed away in 1944 at the age of 67. The cause of death was pneumonia that developed from the flu. If this is the correct Molly, she passed away in Bells, the town where Pearl had been born, and her profession was listed as farming. Drew Farlow passed away in 1971 in Arizona. It does not appear that he ever remarried, and his obituary has little to say about him other than that he was a, quote, former farmer. In 1978, Robert Farlow, the son who, at age five, allegedly witnessed his mother being attacked by George Hughes, died in a Texas state psychiatric hospital at the age of 53. The facility that housed him was originally named the Northwest Texas Insane Asylum when it was built in 1917. It is unknown how Robert came to stay there, but a heart attack was the cause of his death. Prior to being admitted to the state hospital, Robert had been living in a Sherman hotel. One photo of George in life exists, which I will post to the show's social media, but I have never seen one of Pearl. I reached out to several descendants of the Farlow and Apnet families while preparing for this episode, but they did not respond, with one exception. This person informed me that he has, quote, 
very little respect for PhDs who mention anything historical. History has been revised enough. I didn't bother engaging with him again, since it's clear he has no idea that academic research is about searching for and uncovering truths, no matter how uncomfortable those truths may make us or how different they may be from our previous assumptions. We are obsessed with truth, not with revision. In an unrelated tragedy to pile on the pyre of these tragic stories, Pearl Farlow's younger brother, Jesse Lee Atnip, also experienced a premature death. In 1959, at age 53, he went out onto Lake Texoma with his 24-year-old son, J.C., perhaps to do some leisurely catfishing. Their boat somehow capsized, and father and son both drowned. This was the same lake on the Texas-Oklahoma border that I observed so many years ago on the way to try fried catfish for the first time. I passed so many ghosts on that trip. The knowledge of what really happened that Saturday morning in 1930, when George Hughes went to collect the money owed him, is forever lost, along with most, if not all, of the people who lived that day. However, it's essential to note that George never got his day in court, and thus should not be presumed guilty. The scourge of racism that handed down a vigilante sentence eliminated any possibility of due process, a fair trial, a presumption of innocence, or justice served. Sources for today's show include the books Texas Ranger, The Epic Life of Frank Hamer, The Man Who Killed Bonnie and Clyde by John Bossenecker, 1012 Natchez, A Memoir of Grace, Hardship, and Hope by Najoki McElroy, The Tragedy of Lynching by Arthur Franklin Rapper, the academic articles The Sherman Courthouse Riot of 1930 by Edward H. Phillips in the East Texas Historical Journal, Black and Blue in North Texas, The Long-Neglected History of Anti-Black Police Violence in North Texas, 1880-1930 by Holly A. Teague in the Journal of Black Studies, May 1930, White Man's Justice for a Black Man's Crime by Beth Crabb in the Journal of Negro History, the Ph.D. dissertation, they Have Gone from Sherman, The Courthouse Riot of 1930 and Its Impact on the Black Professional Class by Donna J. Kumler at the University of North Texas, and Lynching's End, The Texas Courthouse Riot, programming by Alan Lipke of the educational nonprofit Listening Between the Lines, as well as various newspaper articles. Special thanks again to Melissa Till from ShermanRiot.org for allowing me to interview her. That concludes today's blast into the offbeat past. If you've enjoyed this show, please subscribe, follow it on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or Reddit, tell a friend, and consider rating it five stars to get it back on the charts. Again, complete source information and further reading is listed on the website at classafelons.wordpress.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll be back with another story told with vintage flair and big hair.